This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. Last night, COP26 drew to a close after two weeks of intense arguments, haggling and emotional highs and lows. A pact was approved in principle, but a last-minute change engineered by the delegations from India and China was what drew most of the attention. The final wording in the agreement now refers to nations committing to a phase-down of coal rather than a phase-out, as many have been hoping for. Alok Sharma, the president of COP26, joined Trevor Phillips from Glasgow and set about defending the deal that had been secured. You know, when we started this whole process two years ago, we said that what we wanted to achieve at Glasgow was to keep within reach uh, the temperature goal of limiting temperature rises to 1.5 degrees. We delivered on that. Uh, There were very many people who doubted it. We delivered on it. And actually, that was acknowledged by some of the most climate vulnerable countries, by some of the climate NGOs as well. And I'm very pleased about that. Not only that, but we also closed off all the outstanding elements of the Paris rulebook, the Paris Agreement. After six years, it had not been completed. We did that here. That is historic. And we also ensured that there was more money coming to support uh, developing nations. Uh, And therefore, I think what we've achieved here is something really quite remarkable. Now, on the issue of of coal, uh, I should point out, Trevor, that for the very first time in any of these conferences, the word coal is actually reflected in the text. That, again, is a first. Uh, Yes, of course, I would have liked to ensure that we maintained the phase-out rather than uh, changing the wording to phase-down. But, you know, on the way to phasing out, you've got to phase-down. But ultimately, of course, what we need to ensure is that uh, uh, we continue to work on this uh, this deal, on the commitments. And on the the issue of coal, China and India, of course, are going to have to justify to some of the most climate-vulnerable countries what happened. You heard that disappointment on the floor. So what I would say to you that, you know, overall, this is a historic agreement. We can be really, really proud of it. But of course, this is just the start. We now need to deliver on the commitments. Despite this bullishness, one of the most memorable moments from COP26 was when Sharma delivered a tearful apology to the conference hall yesterday after the compromise on coal was conceded. On Times Radio, Tom Newton Dunn and I spoke to Sharma about what was going through his mind at the time. You had quite an emotional moment on stage last night as you explained to the delegates uh, what had happened. Hayd had to cobble together this, this compromise at the last minute without consulting me. You don't mind me reminding you. Uh, you did seem fairly emotional for a few seconds. You, you slightly choked up. Can I ask why that happened? Why you did seem so visibly upset? Well, uh, look, I mean... I've uh, invested, obviously, an enormous amount uh, in this process. Uh, I've been to uh, many of these countries. I know I've talked to people on the front line of climate change. I've seen what it means for them. Um, of course, uh, the fact that I'd had very little sleep in, in three days, I think about six hours of sleep in three days, uh, probably didn't help as well. Uh, but it was an emotional moment. But it was also the emotion coming through from the fact that we got this deal over the line. And that, for me, was the most important thing. The Shadow Business Secretary Ed Miliband also spoke to Phillips about the events of the last two weeks. Despite praising Sharma's efforts at the summit, Miliband argued that the agreement wasn't enough. Well, I would say that after Glasgow, Trevor, 1.5 degrees, keeping 1.5 degrees alive is, uh, frankly, in intensive care. And it's our job 
uh, in the next 12 months to show that we can save it. The reason I say that is because the task of Glasgow and the task of the world is to halve global emissions over the coming decade. That's by 2030. That's what the scientists tell us is necessary to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And, and the truth about Glasgow, despite some progress, is that the world is only probably about 20% or 25% of the way to that goal. So there is a chasm now between where we need to be in halving global emissions, and all major countries have to step up uh, and play their part in that, and, and where we are. Miliband also stated that more pressure should be placed on the world's largest carbon emitters and singled out Australia as a particular source of frustration. I wish that the um, change, last-minute change hadn't been made, but I wasn't privy to those discussions. I think there is a wider lesson here, though, which is we need to do more to put pressure on all of the big emitters, uh, frankly. Um, that includes India, that includes China, it includes countries like Australia, Trevor. You know, we're, we're doing a trade deal with Australia and we've agreed to drop the Paris temperature commitments from the, the trade deal. Now, Australia is a real laggard on climate. They've got a net zero target to get to zero emissions in 2050, but it's not really a proper plan. And they've got 2030 targets that if every country was doing what they're doing, would take us to four degrees of warming. Now, that would be catastrophic for the world if we ended up in that position. So I think part of the lesson of the, what, you know, what's going to be different in the next 12 months compared to the last 12 months is that for, for all countries, the climate policy can't sit on the side of their other approaches, of their other policies. It's got to be at the heart of what we do. We should be rewriting that Australian trade deal. We should be saying to Australia, look, I'm afraid if you want to be part of the Club of Nations, if you want a trade deal with us, then you've got to step up. And, and, you know, I think it's really important, this, that we can't leave Glasgow. You know, Glasgow was modest progress. It wasn't the transformation we needed. But we can't leave Glasgow and, and if you like, step back. The fight to really keep 1.5 alive starts here in the run-up to COP27. Labour has also been campaigning heavily on the issue of sleaze in the wake of the Owen Paterson furore and has been critical of Conservative politicians such as the former Attorney General, Sir Geoffrey Cox, for his extra parliamentary earnings. Andrew Marr interviewed Labour's Deputy Leader Angela Rayner and quizzed her about Keir Starmer's additional earnings while sitting as an MP. Is it right that he has, and does he need to explain more about how he has earned £100,000 in legal fees since he became an MP? Well, Keir Starmer has given up his certificate to practice, and we've been very clear, and I will not accept that somehow, if you look at those that are having lobbyists that have got contracts for consultancy, and now the revolving door between former prime ministers lobbying the government, the money that's been wasted, the taxpayers' money that has been wasted on dodgy contracts is absolutely obscene, and the sleaze and the scandal and the corruption has undermined our democracy. Can I ask you directly, would a future Labour government ban MPs from taking legal work? The, the Labour Party is very clear that we want to ban second jobs, yes, and we Including want to clean legal up the acts, But I do not accept the premise 
But, Andrew, I do not accept the premise that what uh, Geoffrey Cox was doing, advising a tax haven, which is described by the government mm. as corrupt, and using his office to do that, in any way, shape or form, the same as Keir Starmer doing some legal work when he was first an MP. That is not the same. He's been using um, parliamentary... He, he was actually overseas. He wasn't even doing his votes for his constituents. We all understand that. I'm, I'm just and trying to ask... It's got to stop. Once, once you start to say we're going to stop this... You need to change the rules. And what I'm trying to find is what the new rules would be under Labour. Would you completely ban all outside work or would you allow some work? Well, we said that we'd set up a commission for integrity and ethics to make sure that it's fit for purpose so that we're always working in the interest of the British public. We said that we'd ban second jobs, but there will be some uh, areas like where we've got an A&E doctor that's practising at the moment mm. so that they can continue to do that because they need that for their professional practice. Ma also asked Rayner if she felt that comments that she had made at the last Labour Party conference also contributed to undermining the public perception of politicians. The words you famously used at the Labour conference, let's remind ourselves, we cannot get any worse than a bunch of scum, homophobic, racist, misogynist, absolute pile of banana republic, Etonian piece of scum. Now, you've apologised for that language. Can I ask whether you accept that that kind of language undermines faith in politics generally? Well, I've, I've absolutely apologised for using the word scum, and I think that was right to do so, especially with the discourse at the moment. You but see Boris Johnson every day. Have you apologised so, to him? But, Andrew... Sorry, you see him, every, you see I, him all the time. I haven't seen Boris Johnson. Well, you're in the House but of Commons I have, with him. I have asked... Andrew, this is... This is this is really important. I have asked Boris Johnson to meet with me because I did lay uh, some uh, serious uh, allegations because of his past comments. I have said about them being homophobic, racist and misogynist and I have asked for him to meet with me to discuss that because I actually think all of us have responsibility around our language. I have apologised yeah. for and using at, that language. That I meeting, absolutely it... stand by that apology. But I do think that others, including the Prime Minister, should apologise for the language that he's used in the past which has led to public discourse as well. If he gets on the phone to you later today and agrees to that meeting, will you apologise at that meeting for the language you've used? Absolutely, yes. If, he, if, if Boris Johnson wants to meet with me, which I've asked him to, I'm happy to do so. And I hope we can take it forward, actually, and he will apologise for his comments that he's made in the past. Because I think it's very dangerous when we allow people to say racist, homophobic mm. and misogynistic comments and not apologise for them. When you're in a position of power and influence, then that does add to public discourse. I'm willing to accept well. my responsibility in that, and I hope the Prime Minister will as well. Phillips spoke to the outgoing Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, about the threat that the UK may face from Russia. The former MI6 officer, Christopher Steele, told uh, Sky News that Russian leaders believe that they're at war with the UK and its allies. That makes sense to you? Do you agree with that? Well, <clears throat> I think that um, Russia um, probably regards the uh, global strategic context as a continuous struggle uh, in which I think they would apply all of the instruments of national power uh, to achieve their objectives, uh, but in so doing don't want to bring on a hot war. Um, so yes, I think in a way he's right. The question, of course, is how you define war. And I would tend, to, as a soldier, would tend to define war as the actual act of combat and fighting. Uh, and I think they don't want to do that. I think they want to try and achieve their objectives in rather more nuanced ways. And finally, Carter gave Times Radio his thoughts on the British involvement in Afghanistan over the last two decades for this Remembrance Sunday.
it's going to be a very difficult day for um, a great number of people. And uh, one will be thinking really strongly about that. Um, I mean, I think it, it is challenging because, of course, we're always being asked the question at the moment, was it worth it? Uh, and that's a really difficult question to answer because, of course, it wasn't the outcome that we all fought for. Um, however, we have to play it as it is. Um, I think we have to try and retain some positivity for the way in which um, the British military um, performed on that battlefield. Uh, and I would always argue that we weren't defeated on the battlefield. Uh, and people should be very proud of what they achieved against a very cunning, ruthless and uh, innovative opponent. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Matthew Taylor. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily evening blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash evening blend. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>